It's good to be with you this morning. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, We are in the middle of a a series on hope uh, because we are in the middle of uh, the Easter season. We're in week six and uh, of a uh, seven-week series uh, and uh, seven weeks of Easter, uh, which means that we've got this week and then we've got next week, right? And so I'm actually doing a uh, two-parter today and and next week. Uh, This Uh, Sunday, we're talking about the story of hope. We're talking about uh, hope as we see it in the Old Testament. We're we're talking about what we find uh, as promises, expectations, and then next week we focus on the fulfillment of that hope, right? Which seems a fitting way uh, to end all of it. So, um, if you will, let's begin as we do uh, in the Easter season. I will say he is risen, and you will say he is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. risen. Let us pray together. Oh, heavenly God, you sent your son Jesus Christ to die on our behalf, but you did not leave him there. You raised him from the dead. And because Christ is risen, we too have everything to hope for. I pray this morning, Lord that the words that come out of my mouth be not my own, but be yours, or at least the words that enter the ears of the people, that they be your words. And God, may they not just enter the ears or the head, but may they sink down deep into the hearts. God, we ask for your Holy Spirit in this place, that you dwell amidst us and within us that you dig down deep into our very souls and that you change us from the inside out. God, give us the hope that we need this morning, the only hope that will sustain, a hope, Lord, that you are coming after us, that you are desperate for us, that you love us so dearly that you will not leave us in the places that we find ourselves, but you have called us out of that darkness and into your light. Pray this morning that you open our ears and our eyes and our minds and our hearts to what you have to speak to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin with a quote uh, by, uh, excuse me, uh, by a semi-famous theologian. His name is Emil Bruner. Uh, He says this, he says, what oxygen is to the lungs, what oxygen is to the lungs, such is hope to the meaning of life, right? Anytime someone talks about the meaning of life, I immediately uh, perk up because this is a significant question, right? I mean, we're all wondering, like, what is the meaning of life? How, how, how do we make meaning out of this life? And so Emil Bruner here suggests that whatever is our hope, uh, that will necessarily mean that's breathing oxygen into the lungs of our life and into the meaning that we try to make in this life. Now, we can have these false hopes, right? I think we all know this, right? And so if your hope this morning, I mean, the big question of this whole series has been, what are you hoping in? Like, where are you putting your grandest hopes? Like, the hopes beyond hopes, right? I'm not talking about the little hopes. I'm talking about the big hopes. And so if your big hope in life is to be rich and, and powerful and, and drinking cocktails on a beach in Maui, right? Then your meaning in life 
is going to be surrounded by that hope, right? And then when it doesn't happen, or maybe worse yet, if it does happen, you'll realize just how hollow that kind of hoping is. And you realize there's a need for something more. And so when you ask yourself this morning, we're going to start and we're going to end here. When you ask yourself this morning, what do I hope in? I'm going to offer to you two very specific things. I've been saying them all along, and it's worth just simply saying them again, because this week I see them all over our Old Testament, which is where I want to focus today. And the two grand hopes that I think you should adopt and that I've been trying to uh, bathe myself in for six weeks straight here is this. From the beginning, ever since Eden was in our past and the fall happened, two things have we been searching for and hoping for. Union with God or reunion with God and the redemption of the world. And these two grand hopes, this is what the Old Testament is searching for and it's groping for and it's trying to find and it's pointing us all there. And then as we'll see next week, when we get to the New Testament, we have the key that unlocks that door and then this new grand vision of what we can expect shows up. So this morning, as we think about these two things, I do want to start us back in the Garden of Eden. And in Eden, both of these things, well, they were unnecessary, right? Because union with God already existed. If you know your scriptures well enough and you think back to uh, Genesis 1 through 3, you, you see there that the man and the woman, they're walking in the garden with God, right? And there's a sense of communion with God on a regular basis. And that is how things were supposed to be. And then the other half of this, the, re the redemption of the world was unnecessary because well, hadn't yet been fallen, and it didn't need to be repaired, and nothing was yet broken. And so these two hopes were out of mind. There was no need for them at that moment. But we know that only lasts for three chapters of our Bible, right? And then the rest of it, the rest of it is aiming at these two hopes. And so this morning, I want to talk about where we see these two things in our Old Testament. And so when we think about the fall, when we think about what gets lost from the garden, I want to keep it as simple as possible. One, we lost communion with God, our creator, the one who knows us intimately, the one who loves us more than our very own parents, more than our lovers, more than our friends, more than our children. That God we lost communion with him. And two, we lost order and peace and righteousness and love, and we see new things like death and sin enter the world. And these things, they divide us up, and they wreak havoc on one another and on the physical world itself. And all of this is to say that our hope for redemption of the world is a confession that this world is simply not as it should be. If there's one thing that we shouldn't have to argue for uh, as a Christian belief system is that this world is not as it should be. You just pick up, well, we used to have newspapers. 
you open your internet, <laughs> you go to whatever news site, right? Kendall and I don't watch the news on TV, but we did the other night by chance. And it was like a murder after a, uh, an abduction, after, well, there's the pandemic. It was like bad news after bad news after bad news. And I thought, well, this is why we don't watch this, <laughs> the news. It's incredibly depressing, right? Which is to simply say, there's something wrong with this world. We shouldn't need to argue for this. Here's what I want to do today. I've got three well, really just two parts, and then an epilogue, I'll call it. And part one is that I think the Old Testament hope is pointing us to this desire on God's behalf to be in union and communion with us. And then part two is there's, a new, there's an Old Testament hope that the world is not as it should be, but someday it will be. And God is moving us in that direction. The epilogue to it all is how is God going to achieve this hope? Well, we're here to take communion at the table this morning for a reason. And we believe that this is the key that unlocks everything. And that is the hope that we all hope for. So let's start with part one. The Old Testament hope for union with God. So we all know now, uh, today's Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to the women in our lives. We celebrate mothers on this day for any number of reasons, but primarily because of how they so often give their lives over for their children that they love so dearly. And so it's right to celebrate them and to honor this love and this sacrifice that they give so freely and that they lavish upon all of us. And so without shrinking the significance of mothers and a mother's love, we can say this. The mother's love is some of the purest love that we can experience in this life, right? And think about the women who have loved you so well in your life. But when we think about God's love for us, what I want to point us to this morning is that while a mother's love points to something that is as pure as maybe we can get in this world, God loves us in a perfectly pure kind of way, right? Our Old Testament is filled with examples of of God's love for us and his pursuing of us. And I kind of want to go through a few of these. But what we find is that because of the fall, there is a, there's a gap that gets opened up, right? There's, there's this sense that we have been separated from God. And God, throughout that Old Testament, whether you see it or not, is trying to bridge that gap and find ways to pull us toward himself. And he starts with one man. He starts with Abraham, right? And he goes through that family. And then eventually the goal is to get to all humanity. We see this in how God speaks to Israel. When God first confronts Israel and he comes to them outside of Mount Sinai, they are in Egypt, and he brings them to that mountain. And he says that there's a gap between us 
And he very clearly says in, in Exodus 19 that he's, he draws them to the base of this mountain where quite in a literal way there's a, a shrinking of the gap between God and his people. And he pulls them and they all know that God is in their presence, right? And they see uh, what to them is uh, the, the storm clouds and, and the lightning and the, they hear the thunder and, and they're so, they know that God is around and they're, they're so afraid and so they just send Moses up, right? And so in this way, the gap between the creator and the creation actually literally shrinks down at that mountain. And in this encounter in Exodus 19, God says to his people, I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself, is what he says. I brought you to myself. And our separation is not what I desire, I can hear God saying. It is a problem to be overcome. And behold, I am going to do whatever I need to do to bring you to myself. But he doesn't stop there. It's not the end of the story. God reminds them that the whole earth is mine. This is what he says, quote, the whole earth is mine and everything in it. And then he says, but you, Israel, you, this people that I'm starting with, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. You are a holy nation. A priest in that day and age was somebody who had regular communion with God. They had regular access to God. And the distance between God and humanity may have been great, but the primary role of the priest and of that people Israel was to shrink that gap, right? So over and over again in the Old Testament, God reminds Israel of their relationship. If there's one phrase, we hear it again and again and again, it is, I am your God, you are my people. And he keeps coming after them. I'm your God. You're my people. I'm your God. You're my people. And he's bringing them in. And he's chasing after them. And they so often push him away. And he keeps chasing after them. What we see in the Old Testament is God calling out. We see him crying out. We see him declaring his love for the people Israel, and as we'll see, for the world as a whole. This is not a projection backward onto the Old Testament as if we want to see it there. It is plain as day in the metaphors and the language that God uses to describe his relationship with these people. And there's two in particular that I find compelling. The first is God describes himself as a husband and Israel as his bride. And when we talk about the love that exists between the husband and the bride, this is what God chooses to use to describe the way he loves us and his people. And so in Isaiah 54, 5 and 6, he says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord, Yahweh of hosts, is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, 
Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. And God says, I do not want to leave you there. I want to pull you back into relationship with me. Or in Jeremiah 31, he says this. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. And this idea of God being a a covenant kind of God, in covenant with a marriage kind of covenant with his people. And so he, he sets up, I am a God who loves desperately, and he is looking out for his bride, right? But then there's this other metaphor he uses, and this one is even, I mean, it's everywhere. God as father, right? And so if the first kind of love that we see is a passionate love between two lovers, the love of a a father and a child or a parent and a child, it's a different kind of love, but it's no less loving. It just shows us the many faces of the ways in which God loves us perfectly, and it shows us just how much God desires us. And so throughout the Old Testament we find that God sets himself up as somebody who loves us with everything that he is. And so we take all the different ways that God loves us and the ways he describes his love for us, and we should bundle them up, add layers of love that we probably can't even name, that, be, that are just too mysterious because God is God and we are people, we are finite beings. And so we cannot fully understand this love, but it is beyond comprehension And we should know that God is saying, I love you, the person in the pew. I love you that way. I love you that much. My love is as perfect and as pure as you can ever be loved. And so the point is this. The desire to be united with the Lord, hope number one, right, this desire that union with God is possible, it shows up in all of Scripture. And we see it back in our Old Testament. And the story of hope begins with this notion that we will be united with a God who loves us so much. This is not just John 3.16 and the feel-good verses of our New Testament. It is an integral theme that is woven throughout all of Scripture. And what it says explicitly is that God loves us. God loves you. God has always loved you. God delights in you. Like a proud parent watches you and says, that's my child. Look at him go. Look at her go. But also with the metaphor of a husband and wife God looks in your eyes and says with the passion of a lover, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will not do anything to betray that trust that I have and that you can have in me. I love you. I love you with an everlasting kind of love. 
And it is then in this context, I should say, the passionate love God has for us, the love of the Father that he has for us, that he then turns around and he gives us that one main commandment. You know what I'm talking about? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind, with everything that you are, right? You should love God with all that you are. And why? Because God loved us that way first. It's all through the Old Testament. <laughs> the key, again, we'll come to it in a moment here, is that God demonstrates that love in the most profound way possible when we come to the cross. And we see that God has given up his only son because he has loved us that much. So if the grand Christian hope is union with God, then we see it all over the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. But there is that second side, right? There is this, this grand hope that the world will be redeemed someday, and that God isn't going to leave us in the mess that we're in, but that he is busy fixing it. The first thing I would point you to, actually, is, uh, is a strange place you might not be expecting, and that is the law. The law. Now, if you just kind of put aside for a second uh, what we normally think of as like Old Testament law, the first five books of our Bible, and, and let's think about uh, the law in a modern, like legal United States of America sense, right? We have a law, and we are a nation of laws. Why? Because we are trying to rightly order our society for the benefit of the most people, right? And so we create systems, and, and we, we create a legal system uh, that hopefully punishes the bad and, and exalts the good and, and figures out a way that uh, is best to run this society. Well, well, God starts this back in, again, the Old Testament when he gives the law, right? And so God, in this way, is trying to create Israel into a nation, into not just a people group with a religion, but an actual nation with laws on the books that they are meant to keep, and they are supposed to do. Why? Because God is trying to rightly order that society. He's trying to take what's broken, he's trying to add some order and to fix it, right? But we know that's not quite enough. We know more has to happen. And so as we progress through our Old Testament... It's not enough to have the laws written on books, is it? Because I think we all realize uh, there are people who know those laws that are on the books and they do the opposite anyway, right? So we need a law where? Jeremiah makes very clear that this law that God gives is not meant to be on paper. It is meant to be written on our hearts, now, not to give away like next week or something, but we all should know that as we make the new covenant, as, as Jesus makes the new covenant, rather, and we enter into it, there's a promise that the Holy Spirit will write these laws on our heart and speak what is right into our ears and guide us and direct us into paths of righteousness. But for me, one of the clearest passages I see of God rightly ordering the universe and promising that there will come a day when everything is indeed redeemed 
comes to us in our Old Testament passage for today. Isaiah 65, 17 to 25. We read a beautiful passage, one that uh, we will see that uh, next week the, the, uh, the author to the book of Revelation is going to pick up some pieces from. He's going to weave it into his vision of the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth. And so in Isaiah 65, starting in 17 to 25, Isaiah is envisioning a day where everything's made right again. And he says, behold... God's talking here. I create new heavens and a new earth, right? This is how uh, the author to the book of Revelation begins this vision in Revelation chapter 21. There's a new heavens and a new earth that we all await. And why? <laughs> we don't even need to explain it, right? We know that something is broken and needs fixing. So God is promising here that a day will come when things will be fixed and the former things will not be remembered, will not come to mind. But instead, there will be gladness, there will be rejoicing forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people a gladness. He's fixing the place, but he's also fixing the people in it, right? I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. What he's saying here is in the new Jerusalem or in the new heavens, in the new earth, if you only live to a hundred and you pass away at that point, you will have died a young man, right? And so he's taking on this idea of death and our limitations and our, our human frailty. And he's saying if someone in this new creation were to only get to a hundred, they would have been accursed, and then he goes on and he says, they shall build houses, inhabit them, plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. And here he's quoting from Deuteronomy. And he's quoting this blessing and this cursing section, which is simply saying that God will be blessing those who are in this new creation and he will give them the heart's desire and they will build these houses and they will live in them. And I imagine one's dream home in this place, right? And, and he's saying, I will take care of you. And, and, and the vineyards that you plant and, and the fields that you plant will grow plentifully. Or we might say today, giant will be stocked with a lot of great food. <laughs> and you can walk in and, uh, and not have to worry that there will be famine or a lack For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. And they shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. There's a lot I could go into here, but before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb 
shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. Eden and the story of Genesis 1 through 3 is all over this passage right here, just so you know. And what the author is saying is that a day is coming when what happened in Eden and the curses that came out of it will be turned upside down. And we can all hope for a world that is redeemed from the curses that were found in Eden. And we look forward to that day. And we could hold on with hope that that's coming. And he concludes that they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Now, if God's love for us, this grand hope, this, this union and communion with God connects to this one uh, um, commandment that we too should love God, right, with all our heart, souls, mind, and strength, I would submit to you that this second grand hope this redemption of all things, the redemption of, of you and me, it connects to the second great commandment that Jesus gives us, right? To love your neighbor. He goes so far as to say to love your enemy, right? To love the world and the people in it. And so if God is redeeming all things and all of us in it, then what shall we do? We should love our neighbor. All right, the epilogue. The epilogue is not so much something I need to say. It's something we need to do together. The epilogue is that how this is accomplished, how the hope of all humanity, union with God, redemption of the world, how does that happen? We know as Christians that this happens through Christ's death, where he takes on sin he takes on judgment. He takes on the curses of the world. He bears them and he deals with them. He buries them in the ground. And then on the third day, he is raised again from the dead. And so you and I have a hope that God is drawing us into himself through Jesus' death and resurrection and that Jesus is redeeming the world. Let's pray together. God, our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the mothers uh, who give their lives for their kids and pour out their love lavishly upon their children and upon the world around them. And God, we know that you do the same for the whole world. You have loved us with a pure kind of love. And for that, we give you thanks. We praise you. God, I pray this morning that as we go out into a world that desperately needs you, that we do not hold this hope to ourselves, that we share it with others. We share that you, a loving God, is desperately searching for us and that you are redeeming this world and that the key to it all is a crucified Savior who was raised again on the third day. I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.